Before time to skip to reading, I will be reading the text that will be preached. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 20. Revelation 1, 12 through 20, and then we'll pray together. Beginning in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for Lord's Day. We thank you for the work of redemption, that you have created all things, and by your will are they sustained, and do they flourish, all humans and creatures, ecosystems, the entire planet, and all the luminaries that go well beyond into the universe. They are a product of your provision. You have created them out of nothing. We are here because of your design. We have fallen, as we are so acutely aware. We praise you for the covenant of redemption whereby the Son was sent on our behalf to take on flesh, to be able to sympathize and empathize with our lives. Thank you for his obedience and his work on the cross. Thank you then, as he ascended to your right hand, he sent forth the Holy Spirit to give us grace and faith to allow us to hear your message of freedom and salvation and to respond in obedience and desire. Thank you for all of that and leaving us with the church and your word, with the power of your spirit in this age, whereby we gather and are nourished. So we thank you for your word, the work that the spirit does with your word, and our ability to be here this morning to receive of that. Pray that you would bless us as we consider your passage here in the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Blessed to our account, all here who are needy, which is all of us spiritually. Bless and nourish and feed us, your people. Bless Pastor Dan and the study and exercising of his honors to us, that we receive of them in good faith and be challenged by them fairly and to receive and be nourished. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we mentioned uh, last week, 
we're going to have two series going on here. I'm going to be in Revelation, and really we're looking at chapters 2 and 3 in the seven letters to the seven churches, and back and forth Pastor Adam, who will be in Esther. But before we get into the, the letters themselves to the seven churches, we're going to take one more week here and look in Revelation 1, set the context for us. If you remember, Revelation is written to a church that needs to overcome. It is written to encourage the church to overcome. As John starts the beginning of Revelation, he says this is written and these things are about to take place. It is upon us. The church is in its latter days. It's in its end times. And so the church understands that here in Asia Minor. We understand the same thing. And John turns then. And if you're going to overcome, we need to see Jesus Christ. And so he points to Jesus Christ and he calls him the faithful witness. That indeed he was the faithful witness who walked a life of perfect obedience who testified to God's saving purposes and accomplished all that God had set before him, who was faithful before Pilate as he stood there in that sham of a trial and was a faithful witness all the way to death. And we see that as our example and as our encouragement that we will be a faithful witness. But he's also a faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. But he is the overcomer. He defeated the final enemy of the death and the grave. And so we see that, that He is the overcomer for us, and in Him we are overcomers. We indeed will share in that resurrection from the grave. And then He goes on to say after that, He is the ruler of kings on earth. In His absolute sovereignty, He is building His kingdom here. We saw what that means in Ephesians 1. That as the king on earth, he's working all things, ruling all nations for the sake of his church, the sake of his end-time church. That would be us. Listen, Ephesians 1 says, And he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things for his church. The King of kings and the Lord of lords now works for his church, and then attached to it is that final promise that he will return. He is coming back. The victory that began in his resurrection will be finalized in his return. And so we find the church in this age, these last days, between these two poles of the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ, that is where we find ourselves. We are that church. And as we look at the description over the next several weeks of the church, which is in Asia Minor, we'll see that it could be a diagnosis of the church in America today. I don't exclude us from that. Just what, what sets in of apathy and disobedience and compromise of suffering and we see that it's just in the church today, what we experience, why we need to overcome, is not just one individual thing that on its own we might feel like, oh, that's not insurmountable. It's just the accumulation of things in our lives. Just the busyness of living life, the blessings of family, the, the blessings of jobs, the daily tasks that need to take place, 
that on top, then you add temptations and sufferings and things that just pile up and the difficulty of relationships. And it's hard to overcome because it's everything else just distracts us and it feels like I just need to get through the day and through, through life and, and as we said last week, through these dirty dishes and this laundry pile and whatever it might be. And the strength to endure, to overcome, stays to the background. And John, before he would make a diagnosis of the churches, first he points us to the remedy, and that is that we see Jesus Christ for who he truly is in all of his glory. We saw one of the interpretive keys to Revelation is that we are to see the book. We are to see what is written in there. You think about First Peter, we went through that. It's didactic teaching. It's very much, we, we kind of go through line by line and we look at how this relates to this and it's easy teaching in that didactic method. Esther's going to be very different than that in this sort of uh, crazy story that takes place in Esther. And Revelation is going to be different than that. It's apocalyptic literature. Three times in Revelation 1, John is told to write what he sees. Man, that, that's a difficult task, to write what you see. I, I have these two moments in my life where it's like this vivid imagery that is seared into my brain of, and oddly enough, we both deal with a bird. Um, when I was oh, probably third grade, we lived in New Zealand. Um, my dad was involved in mission work over there. And we had a lot of freedom as kids over there. And, and where we lived near us, there was kind of, it wasn't really wooded area. It would be what you think of almost like rainforest type of area. And I remember going in there and playing. And it, it, I was in there by myself, kind of hushed, quiet. But the ground is real thick vegetation. And then there's this real high canopy that's real thick of all the palm trees and but then a lot of space in between. And I remember playing as a kid, laying down, doing something, hearing this noise, rolling over on my back, and seeing two giant wild parrots flying around. And it's like I was a little scared. I was mesmerized. And the, the vividness, the color, the size, the sound, all of these things are seared into my brain. I remember even walking back home at the end of it thinking, I'm not going to be able to explain this to my parents, my brothers and sisters. Either they're not going to believe it. Or just, I'm not, the way it made me feel, the way 30 years later it still sort of gives me this feeling, it's seared in my brain. I, I can't explain that totally. The other was in college, um, where we were in college, fairly not far from campus, you're in the rural area. And so traveling down on this narrow road, my dad was out visiting. We went out for breakfast. It's fairly early in the morning. The road's not very wide. Then not far off either side of the road is, is wooded. It's just real tall, straight pine. So you can kind of picture like these walls of pines on either side. We're driving that early morning light. The bald eagle comes over top of the car and flies not 50 feet in front of us, maybe 20 feet off the ground, something like that. It's wings easily wider than our car. And just my dad and I sort of captured, you know, not really even knowing what to say, seeing that happen. And then once we got to breakfast, that's all we talked about. And it's, again, 
I think, okay, that's something physical. Now, I can kind of explain to you, but it's still frustrating because I, I can't explain to you just how amazing it was. Like, just looking at you, I can tell. You don't feel the way that I feel about it. Now, imagine John gets this vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here he's told to write down what he sees, but what he sees isn't, you know, just physical, material things of, well, I see Jesus, he's roughly 6'1", he's this, he's that, and there's the devil, he's red, and he's orange. He sees, like, beyond the physical and tangible, as if the curtains are drawn back and gets a glimpse of what is real, of the spiritual warfare, of what is taking place and Christ building his kingdom. John knows for him, for this church to overcome, what, what Jesus tells John to do them is give them a sense. Tell them what you see. This is what they need to see. This is what they need to feel if they are going to overcome. And he paints for us then this picture of Jesus, not in real physical, material things, but in these grand apocalyptic ways that really should to draw us up, to capture our heart and our mind. And it's not a real comfortable picture of Jesus at times. I promise I won't be that guy who quotes C.S. Lewis every week. Um, but I've read a lot of them, really, so I'm going to do it one more time. But if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the description of, of the lion, of Aslan, in this, he's not a one-dimensional character. There's this sense of they want to draw near to him and just to sort of feel the softness of his mane, and yet they tremble and want to hide from him. One moment they feel his paw and they say it's covered velvety soft, but it's extremely heavy. There's this dimension of Christ, and we talked about it last week, and we'll talk about it again this week, because I think it sets the table for us, and, and John spends a whole chapter doing it, is that we've come and we've, we've looked at sort of all of these soft virtues of Jesus, and we've presented this idea of Jesus in the church of something that makes him not much more than like the nice old man down the street, or perhaps you're your boyfriend or your prom date. And, and he's this, you know, someone who he is loving and he's caring and relational. He would never offend your sensibilities. He'd never ask you to do something that you're uncomfortable with. He's very manageable for us. And the expectations we make of Jesus after our own image and his expectations of us are simply that when we feel like it, he's there to be our friend. That's not the Jesus that is presented to us here. There is a weight of glory to the Jesus that is presented to us here. And this is what we need in order to overcome. So we'll simply walk through the text here and look at some of these phrases and what it is that we're being taught. We see the reaction of John, don't we? At the end, verse 17, when I saw him, when he got this glimpse, he fell at his as though he were dead. This Jesus that is presented to John, when he gets a glimpse of it, it's not just warm sunlight he's basking in. He falls on his 
face as though dead. There is both an awfulness and a sweetness to it. That is always the case when God reveals Himself in Scripture, is not? You think of Moses. When God reveals the burning bush, Moses is afraid and he hides his face. When God reveals himself to Job, remember that? Job says, I heard of you with my ears. But when God answers Job and starts asking him, where were you when I created Leviathan? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And goes on and on. Job says, I heard of you with my ears, and now that my eyes see, I repent in dust and ashes. He's overwhelmed. It was Saul, his conversion, actually not our Act 9 and road to Damascus. Always, but God appears and he falls down. Everyone else is speechless. And that's the case here when Jesus appears. So we look, in verse 12, John turns. He sees the voice that was speaking to him. Turning, he sees seven golden lampstands. Later we're told that those lampstands are the seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man. What must be understood and recognized here is this Christ who we're seeing, who is described for us today, is in the midst of his church. He is in the midst of his church right now. It's not some far off place, some unapproachable place. Christ is in our midst. That should change the way that we anticipate coming to worship. That should change the way that we participate in worship. It's that the majestic Christ is in our midst right now. All that we're going to see about Him takes place in our midst. John, it's not coincidental that he receives this vision on Lord's Day. Christ now in our midst. When we order our worship, when we come with confession to the Lord. It's not just random. We do so because we are in the presence of our Lord and it is right for us to confess our sins. It is right for us to be assured of pardon. It is right for us to be focused and to sing and be praised and to make much of a Jesus Christ who is in our midst. And then it begins to describe Him. Verse 13, in the midst of the lampstand, as one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The long robe, it, it refers back to Old Testament imagery almost exclusively when it refers to this robe that is long or down to the feet, referring to the priest. To have the golden sash and to have it not around his waist but up high around his chest talks about his, his preeminence, his his high ranking, that Jesus is our great high priest. When John sees Christ in the midst of his church, he sees the high priest who is making intercession, who is able to offer atonement and forgiveness. It goes on, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. John's borrowing here from Daniel, this imagery of the Son of Man that has been presented in Daniel. In Daniel 7, verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. 
John is doing an interesting thing here, taking the, the testimony of the ancient of days and the testimony of the Son of Man and mixing them together, putting them over top of one another. That he, the Son of Man, is the ancient of days. That this God anointed King Jesus is him, all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. He is the God man. And so he takes this prophetic idea of the ancient of days, the Son of Man, and he places it together. It speaks there of the, the white hair and the wool. It speaks to the wisdom, the authority that resides in our Christ. Again, John trying to write what he sees. He is wise. He is to be listened to. There is authority in what he says. When he goes on, his eyes were like a flame of fire. One of the commentators I read says it this way The eyes of this Son of Man are not the clouded eyes of fading glory, they are eyes of sharpest clarity. They miss nothing that happens in the universe, and they are exploding with energy. So you see this white hair of this this wise, older, aged person. But then you combine that at the same time with this blazing fire and energy of a young bridegroom coming for his bride. That indeed Jesus Christ will carry out his mission. It's interesting as you think about Sort of the this sort of zeal or passion of Christ. There's an important doctrine that we talk about is God's impassibility, and it can mean that God is is without emotion, or more appropriately, God without changing emotion. When we speak of of God's impassibility, we're not saying that He is cold or or without any sort of feeling or emotion that, that we might think of. Whether, rather, what we're saying is that, that Jesus Christ doesn't express emotion and feeling at one time that changes to the next time. That he's not a reacting to you and then coming, reacting in a certain emotion that over here he's hot one day and he's cold the next day. That he's angry and now he's loving God is the fullness of all of these things, but He is all of these things fully and constantly and simultaneously. That He is always loving towards His creation. He is always redemptively loving towards His elect. He is always angry at sin. He is always bringing justice on the oppressor. He is passionate for His glory. And we see this in the Christ. Not one who reacts, not one who will feel like the churches are hot one moment and cold the next moment and, and reactionary and changing emotions. He is the fullness of all of these demonstrated to his people perfectly and simultaneously. We see in that fire, that purifying fire, there's always a picture of holiness. Holiness that belongs to Christ. The fire, as we saw in First Peter, that is a purifying work on his people. Moving the grass, greening that which is pure to the surface. Goes on in verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. 
feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. If you remember again, back to Daniel, which serves sort of as a basis for so much of Revelation. Nebuchadnezzar has those visions of these statues, and, and these statues represent different empires and nations that rise. And the feet of these statues are made out of a mixture of clay and iron. A substance that is not going to withstand the weight. And up grows the statue, and then the feet crumble. It's unstable. In comparison to that now, as we get a picture of Jesus Christ, the feet are as burnished grass that what he builds will remain. That he is stable, that he is the unshakable foundation of his church. It will not crumble. It will not be consumed. When he tells us to be overcomers, this is the picture he's having us see. He goes on. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Just that thunderous, all-consuming roar. You hear nothing else. Nothing else can be spoken of over top of it as it goes forth gloriously. But then it changes the imagery. We're still speaking of his voice in verse 16. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We've seen this imagery before. Hebrews 4, verse 2, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates either the dividing soul, spirit, joint, and marrow, judges, thoughts, and attitudes of the mouth. Ephesians 6, remember as we were told to, to put on the armor of God, it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The voice of God thunders. It is a sword, it is an offensive weapon in our lives. It is that offensive charge that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Where is this voice being heard? Where is it thundering? in the midst of the church. God still thunders in His Word. I get it. Not every week when you come, I'm not by any means saying that I'm up here and I'm just thundering waterfalls and, and on my own blowing everyone away. And yet in another way, God's Word still thunders and it is still a sword that goes out. And week after week as we come, God's Word is thundering. It is that sword doing its offensive work in building the kingdom. It would have its way in our hearts and in our lives. You don't always see the effect of it, but we do say you neglect it long enough and you'll feel the reverse effect of it. You see the cumulative effect over time of how God builds us up and sustains us with His Word. And then, finally, in verse 16, His face is like the sun shining in full strength. The hottest of hot, the brightest of bright. The picture here is not the warm sun you bask in, it's a consuming hot sun. One that Moses wasn't able to look on or he would be consumed. One that even just catching a glimpse of the tail end of God's glory, his face shone so brightly that he had to cover it. Otherwise, it would blind other people. 
There is a weight to the glory of our Christ. He is not just to take it or leave it. He doesn't just, you know, understand that you have other priorities and you'll place them where you place them. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when you're facing difficulty, when things are piling up, you need to remember that. Don't let that shake you out of the apathy. Let that lift you out of the mire of a glorious, weighty glory of our King. But then there's still a tenderness to His touch. Verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me. So I condescend, tenderly reaches out, and he lays his hand on me and says, Fear not. We fear God, and that fear serves us because God isn't just a terrifying God, but He's a terrifying God who is for us. He's laid down His life for us. He's the only one who can bring a charge against God's elect. He's the only one who can condemn. And He stands for us. He can stand against us. We don't find comfort and hope of belittling who God is, but lifting Him up and seeing Him for all that He is and realizing that He is for us. He goes on, I am the first and the last. Chapter 1 begins with those words referring to the Father and now the Son, declaring the fullness of God in Himself takes that moniker on for himself. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He beats the greatest enemies that we have to fear. Sin, death, powers and principalities. He took them on and he defeated them. And now I have the keys of death and Hades. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is for us. And so in his majestic power, he reaches down and he cares for us. He touches us. He tells us not to fear. Then he goes on, Right therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place. What we come to when we come to the text that we'll look at for the next several weeks, when we look at these churches, I want us to understand that we are the church in these last times between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His return. And that this vision of Christ needs to capture us. And then when the commendation comes and we receive it from that merciful hand of God, when things are pointed out and we can see in our own lives and in our church family, and that's something we need to repent of and move forward, we will do so. All of it underpinned by a great and holy and mighty God, the Alpha and Omega, who is 
Just a moment, stop for a minute. 